to prepare your brains for yet another Keanu-like download. Uh, uh, we just need to make sure we've got all our presentations loaded. We're going to have brief talks then from Amy Stepanovich of Access, who will be uh, surveying uh, the global state of surveillance. Uh, we have a very, I, I realize that even in this global network panel at US Focus, uh, we'd like to broaden out a little bit and acknowledge that there are, uh, uh, I'm told, other countries too. Um, so we'll be surveying the state of surveillance around the globe. We have Laura Donahue of Georgetown University, um, who will be uh, examining the return of the general warrant, the one thing that it's absolutely clear the Fourth Amendment prohibits, which seems to have been uh, resurrected in this age of uh, single authorizations, sweeping in tens of thousands of targets. Uh, my colleague John Mueller, who has uh, been I think, absolutely vital in analyzing the costs and benefits of surveillance, something that is, uh, I think, uh, too, too infrequently done. Uh, we ask the question, uh, you know, well, can the statute be twisted to permit this sort of surveillance, not uh, is it doing much good, uh, or is this worth the billions we're spending on it? And then finally, uh, from Demand Progress, Dan Schumann will talk about how to uh, attempts to get Congress better educated about national security issues so that they can do uh, better jobs of crafting, uh, crafting statutes that uh, don't require us to uh, uh, throw spitballs at them from, uh, from places like the Cato Institute. So I'm very pleased to introduce Amy Stepanovich. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for bearing with us, sticking it out for the afternoon sessions. Um, I'm really pleased to be here today um, and for the time to talk to you about some of the things that AXIS is doing on the global state of surveillance. Um, just to preface, these are all some preliminary findings of a continuing research project that we're doing, so these are not final results, um, but I thought some of the things that we are looking at you all would find very interesting. Um, and I've already lost the clicker for this. Um, so just to preface, my name is Amy Stepanovich. I work at an organization called AXIS Now. Um, Access Now defends and extends the digital rights of users at risk around the world. That is our mission statement. Um, to do this, we actually work out of um, six different offices. We are right here in Washington, D.C. We're up in New York. We're in Brussels, San Jose, Tunis, and Manila. Um, and then we have satellite presences in India, Argentina, Kenya, and Turkey as well. So we really are a global organization. Um, unlike a lot of people who are doing work in Washington, D.C., we get input from all over the world whenever we're doing um, policy work. Um, as a part of this, one of the projects that we worked on back in 2013, um, and this actually started before Edward Snowden was a name that everybody knew, um, was called the, the International Principles on the Application of Human Rights to Communication Surveillance. Um, because we know that is a mouthful, we shorten that to the necessary and proportionate principles, which is much easier to say and easier to access. Those are located at necessaryandproportionate.org. They were, as I said, they were developed in 13 with many different organizations. Um, key groups included Access, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and Privacy International. And there were 13 principles that really looked at how to ensure that human rights were protected during government surveillance activities. So what did you really need to focus on and make sure that you were protecting as governments were conducting surveillance? Um, they're very broad principles, um, things like legality, but also, um, as the name might imply, necessity and proportionality, which are the standards that international human rights law applies to surveillance. Um, and what you'll necessarily hear about surveillance in any country other than the United States where we tend to default to the Fourth Amendment standards. But at Access, we have been trying to think about what is actually happening in the world. 
Um, there really is no major resource where people can go to and say these are the surveillance activities that are authorized or that are taking place in, for example, Russia or China, um, in the United Kingdom, in Nigeria. So we kind of came at this problem of what's really going on. And if we're going to be a global, or a global organization doing surveillance reform, what, are, what is the state of play that we're looking at? Um, there were a lot of roadblocks that we found to trying to figure out what this looked like. Um, I am an English language speaker, obviously. Most of the people I work with in DC are as well. Um, and if you ever do a Google search, I, I challenge you all to do this and type in surveillance law into Google, um, most of what you're going to get is NSA, CIA, DHS, things that are happening right here in the United States. And then when you start getting outside the United States, um, the resources are largely in the native language. So you have a problem accessing that. Um, you have a problem trying to find sources that are aggregated um, that you don't have to pay a large amount of money for. And then you have a problem with just the complexity of surveillance law. As anybody knows who works in the United States, these laws are not necessarily easy to come at from a non-expert standpoint and just understand. If you've tried to read through FISA, you just know this inherently. These are not self-descriptive um, pieces of legislation. Um, to demonstrate this, I found nothing better than um, this line on Wiki Wikipedia. Um, I was looking up the uh, UK's primary um, intelligence law, known as RIPA, and the statement that came up was, the type of communications data that can be accessed varies with reason for its use and cannot be adequately explained here. Um, this is what Wikipedia said about UK surveillance law. Um, so I thought that was really, really instructive about just how hard it is to figure out what's going on. So uh, what did we do about this? Um, Access teamed up with the Columbia School of International Affairs um, on Research. So this is the SIPA school. Um, the students there did a lot of preliminary research for us um, on 19 different countries. Um, Argentina, Australia, Canada, Chile, China, France, Germany, India, Japan, Mexico, Myanmar, Nigeria, Russia, Singapore, South Korea, Syria, Syria Turkey, the UK, and Vietnam. Um, we looked at, amongst other things, what their legal structure is, so how they're formed, how their government operates, um, what constitutional protections they had into place, what surveillance laws were actually on the books, um, what their practices were, so even if there were not necessarily surveillance laws, what they were doing, and then what's coming up next. What are they discussing right now? What is on their horizon? So we're hoping, um, fingers crossed, barring um, no difficulties, and anybody who works in policy knows that difficulties will come up, um, to publish some final um, results on this study in early 2016. Um, but like I said, some preliminary things to share with you all today. Um, preliminary findings. Most countries have really strong constitutions with guarantees of human rights protections. Um, just to get down, um, almost every country that we looked at actually had a really um, strongly worded constitution, much like our own, even though many of them were written more recently. Um, by way of example, Turkey has a really comprehensive constitution, guarantees freedom of religion, expression, thought, and freedom of the press. However, a lot of these constitutions also had restrictions on the exercise of these rights. So even though that the initial language was very strong, if you keep, kept reading and you kept going down, um, there were restrictions. So in the Turkish constitution, there's actually a general restriction on rights. They may be restricted by law as long as they don't interfere with the spirit of the constitution. You all can define that for yourselves as well as I can. Um, and that they can be, there are heightened restrictions in times of war, in times of martial law, or in states of emergency. 
So very good language on freedom of the press and privacy and freedom of speech, but built in restrictions into the Constitution on when those can be um, author or accessed. The second one is that countries are really quickly expanding their surveillance laws. You know, I'm, I'm actually really glad I came after that last panel. I'm talking a lot about what's going on in the United States because what we're finding outside the United States is even since Edward Snowden, most of the countries that we looked at have proposals or have recently passed legislation that allows them to do more surveillance. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a second. Um, but for an example, Mexico, Myanmar, Canada, Germany, France, Nigeria, India, Turkey, and Argentina have all passed surveillance laws since the Snowden disclosures to expand their authority to spy on individuals. Um, justifications for these laws um, and for other surveillance authorities are almost always tied to public safety. Um, so in Mexico, they talk a lot about um, narcotics traffic with the United States. In South Korea, they talk about gaming addiction. Gaming addiction is actually a reason to pass surveillance authorities and to monitor people. Um, and then you find kind of the typical justifications, terrorism, child pornography, um, crime, or missing persons um, all come up a lot in every single country. Um, the trends in the surveillance laws that we're seeing, there are four things that we kind of see pop up over and over and over again, um, things that people are looking at exploring. The first is data localization. Data localization are laws that require that data is stored internal to a country's borders. You're not allowed to ship data outside of the country's borders. Uh, mainly, we're seeing the mandatory data localization provisions. Um, these are slightly separate from the provisions that say we require additional data protections. If you store the data outside of the country, these are the more permissive ones. Those are ne not necessarily as prevalent. We're seeing much, many more of the mandatory provisions. Um, South Korea um, in, now is considering a law that in, requires insurers and financial institutions to have domestic servers. Um, data, Russia, actually, more notoriously, has recently passed data localization legislation. Um, data retention. Mexico, in 2014, passed a law that requires all telcos um, to collect and retain location data. Australia, um, over the last couple years, has passed three what they call terror laws. Um, the third one requires telcos to hold subscriber and location data for two years. Um, data retention is also right now being debated all over Europe. Um, as many of you may not know, the European Court of Justice um, last year struck down European's data retention directive. So a lot of the countries are trying to figure out if they need to put back into place data retention legislation or if they're going to go without it. The third thing that we're seeing is metadata access. Um, I believe metadata was the word of the year last year. You know, this is something that most people now understand what metadata means. It's the data about our data. And so a lot of countries are trying to figure out how they can get their hands on it. Why is that? Because metadata can actually be more revealing than the actual content that we create. Um, so in Canada, we have C-13, um, which was a cyberbullying law, but within its um, provisions actually lowered the threshold by which authorities can get um, a hold of metadata. And France had a 2013 law on military spending that actually within its provisions authorized the real-time access to metadata from networks of telcos and hosting providers without court authorization. So really just this increased look at trying to get not only access to metadata without as much process, but much faster access to metadata. You know, in France, this is now real-time access. And finally, location tracking. 
Um, location data is really a part of metadata, but because a lot of people think it's so much more sensitive, um, countries often call it out specifically. Um, away from, you know, we're going to allow collection of metadata, but we're also going to allow um, collection of location information. Um, in Russia, we have seen this, and what is called the SORM, it's um, the SORM 3. Russia is codifying practices that it put into place um, in order to conduct security operations for the Sochi um, Olympic Games, and this is emphasizing the importance of collecting location information. So these are the things that we see continually popping up all over the world. Um, many of these things are also being debated in the United States. Um, one of the reasons we actually didn't focus on the United States here is because, first of all, many of the people who do work here um, already know about it. Um, but second, it's really the United States is what you see being discussed all over the world. There's a really good reason for that. The US has more money, more resources, more time that they put into surveillance than most other countries. Um, we didn't do this report to undermine the emphasis on the, the United States and the NSA's activities and the importance of modifying them to the entire global economy. Um, by limiting the NSA, you actually limit a good amount of the surveillance taking place around the world. But we did want to draw attention to what other countries were doing in their own right, um, because it's not really being discussed. I'm going back to some of our final preliminary findings. Uh, rights of access are being considered. These are um, access to um, files that the government maintains about you, things like the Privacy Act within the United States. Um, but much like the Privacy Act, they're being considered with very broad national security exemptions. Um, where law is silent, where there aren't surveillance laws, there are human rights abuse, abuses that are thriving. Countries are using silence as a reason to do whatever they want to do. And finally, when courts get involved, the results are varied. Um, in Japan, the Osaka District Court has ruled that GPS tracking was lawful in certain cases. They actually said that a GPS device is an extension of physical world tracking. Um, you can compare this to the 2012 Supreme Court case in the United States, um, US v. Jones, where they actually talked about the differences between physical, physically tracking somebody's location with a police officer versus using a GPS device. Um, the Japan court actually looked at that distinction and went the other way. Um, however, in South Korea, a law that allowed telcos to voluntarily, it's not a law actually, a law kind of was ambiguous that allowed um, telcos to choose to voluntarily send information to the government if the government were to request that. Um, most companies in South Korea took advantage of that voluntary um, ability and were sending information to government. But two court decisions have actually limited um, or prohibit, stopped them from doing this and started having them go back to the government and ask for a warrant before they send information. The first was a, um, the court put a pretty big fine on one company for sending information. And then later on, um, the court told three telcos that notice had to be provided to a customer if they were to voluntarily provide information to the government. Um, so provide information without asking for a warrant. Um, so we are then going to look at recommending things to these um, governments. And one of the things that we have done in way, by way of that is we've taken the necessary and proportionate principles that I spoke about earlier, and Access actually earlier this year published an implementation guide for those principles. So we wanted to move um, 13 very broad, very um, top level principles down and drive that down into practice 
what do these principles actually look like on a day-to-day -day basis for law enforcement trying to get access to data? And so we went from the moment that law enforcement knows that they need to conduct communication surveillance to get information about an individual, all the way through the process through judicial review, and thought, what is the ideal process to put into place? Noting that surveillance is going to occur, how can we work in as many human rights protections as possible? So we did publish that implementation guide that it will be the cornerstone by which we build our recommendations around. Um, we are also recommending that company, uh, countries justify expansions in domestic law by look, or that is not a recommendation. That is a fact. Um, so countries often do justify their expansions in domestic law by looking at other countries' practices. Um, we see this in the United States all of the time. The US actually often says, you know, it's okay that we're conducting surveillance. Don't you know that other countries are doing this also and that nobody's going to stop? Um, we say that that's not an acceptable um, justification, that really we need massive global surveillance reform. That's one of the reasons we conducted this survey. You can no longer look at other countries as a justification for what you're doing. Um, we believe that bulk surveillance is not acceptable. Surveillance that goes out and collects information on every person without any sort of targeting is really just inherently antithetical to human rights protections. We need global recogni recognition of human rights standards and that needs to be universally applied. Um, the US is the worst offender at this. The US believes that people outside of the United States don't really have any um, protections for their data. So by virtue of being a non-US person, which means a non-resident and non-citizen, um, that your information be can be collected just by virtue of that status. And these laws need to be simplified whenever possible. Um, the law should be able to put a person on notice when they are liable to be subject to surveillance. So we believe that in order to do that um, in a way that's not necessarily um, outlawing secret law, which we think is absolutely something that needs to be done, we actually have to push for the simplification of law because regular people should be able to know when they're going to be subject to surveillance. Um, so I have four minutes, I think. Um, if anybody has any questions, otherwise, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Julian, and thank you to the Cato Institute for inviting me here today to speak. I love coming here, actually. Every time I come, I learn, and Amy, that's no exception. That was a terrific talk, and I was very interested to hear what you had to say about the international perspective, uh, because the default to the Fourth Amendment standard is exactly what I'm going to be addressing. Even though we didn't coordinate this, I'm coming at it from the other side. Um, now, my remarks today are from a couple years of research that I've done that will be coming out the Fourth Amendment historical side with the University of Chicago Law Review in February, uh, and the tie to the digitization and the future of surveillance and privacy law will be coming out with Oxford University Press also in February in a book entitled The Future of Foreign Intelligence, Privacy and Surveillance in a Digital World. What is a general warrant? A general warrant is a document that's issued by a court or the executive branch that gives officials the broad authority to search for and to seize private documents without any prior specific evidence of wrongdoing. It does not specify with any particularity the person or place to be searched, 
or the papers or records to be seized. It's not supported by oath or affirmation of any wrongdoing. It amounts to a fishing expedition to try to find evidence of illegal activity. For centuries prior to the American founding, English jurists and legal scholars rejected general warrants as the worst exercise of tyrannical power. A brief look at the history helps to illustrate why these recent intelligence programs are an anathema to the principles that underlie the United States Constitution. During the reign of Charles I, Sir Edward Cook argued in Parliament against the use of general warrants for even for threats to the realm. If such instruments be used per mandatum domini regis or for matters of state, he thundered, then we are gone and we are in a worse, worse case than ever. If we agree for matters of state, we shall leave Magna Carta and other statutes and make them fruitless and do what our ancestors will never do. The 1628 Petition of Right went on to condemn general warrants. Cook returned to his arguments in the third part of the Institutes of the Laws of England. To issue general warrants, he wrote, is against Magna Carta. Preventing their use lay at the heart of the rule of law. Nec super iam ibimus, nec super iam idimus, nisi per legale judicium parium forum, well per legum terre. Neither will we pass upon him or condemn him, but by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. Cook's rejection of general warrants reflected growing frustration at the Crown's use of general warrants during the time. Cook's institutes themselves fell subject to the general warrants that he condemned. As he was dying on his deathbed, Charles I ordered that his institutes be seized, that all of his trunks be seized and brought in front of him. Uh, Charles I himself broke open the trunks when they arrived, but his actions were too late to stem the tide. His institutes went on to be published, and legal scholars and jurists began cementing Cook's thoughts into other legal treatises of the time. In 1678, Sir Matthew Hale, most famous for his 1639 History of the Common Law of England, he noted in his first volume of the Pleas of the Crown, a general warrant to search for felons or stolen goods not good. Two years later, Parliament directed publication of his manuscript. When Historia Practicum Coronae, or History of the Pleas of the Crown, finally appeared in 1736, it became enormously influential. In it, Hale stated a general warrant to search in all suspected places is not good, but only to search in such suspected places, particular places, where the party assigns before the justice his suspicion and the probable cause whereof, for these warrants are judicial acts and must be granted upon an examination of the fact. Hale continued, therefore, I take those general warrants dormant, which, uh, those, which are made many times before any felony committed are not justifiable, for it makes a party in effect the judge and therefore searches made by pretense of general warrants give no more power to the officer or party than that what they may do by law without them. So for centuries, English courts looked to these treatises and rejected the concept of a general warrant. It was, for instance, to Hale that Lord Mansfield appealed in a case later brought over the Crown's efforts to prevent publication of the political weekly known as North Britain, North Britain number 45. In 1762, John Wilkes had founded the North Britain uh, in opposition to the pro-government political weekly Britain, uh, taking great delight thereafter in lampooning the crown generally and George III's favorite, um, John Stuart, the third, heir of, third Earl of Butte in particular. When Butte entered into negotiations with the French, bringing the Seven Years' War to conclusion, the North Britain and others attacked the terms of peace. 
Wilkes, uh, shown here in somewhat less than flattering terms, um, he lamented that the French king, by a stroke of his pen, has regained what all the power of that nation and her allies could never have recovered. While political hostility fused Butte, forced Butte's uh, resignation, uh, the North Britain continued to attack when George Grenville assumed the office of prime minister and sanctioned the Treaty of Paris. Wilkes went on to condemning the British government for having saved England from the certain ruin of success. Uh, he lamented seeing the crown sunk even to prostitution. This time, he went too far. Three days after publication uh, of this political weekly, Lord Halifax signed a warrant authorizing the king's messengers to make strict and diligent search for the authors, printers, and publishers of the seditious libel entitled The North Britain, and to apprehend and seize them together with their papers to bring them in safe custody before the crown to be examined. In the Malay that followed, dozens of cases challenged general warrants. In Wilkes versus Wood, uh, Wilkes's lawyer, John Glynn, argued that more was at stake than the simple execution of one warrant against one person. At stake was the right of all Englishmen. In vain has our house been declared by the law, our asylum, and our defense, if it's capable of being entered upon any frivolous or no pretense at all by a secretary of state. The seizing of Wilkes's papers represented the worst defense against the crown's subjects. For other offenses, acknowledgment might make amends. But for the promulgation of our most private concerns, affairs of the most secret, personal nature, no reparation whatever could be made. English law, counsel argued, never admits of a general search warrant. Beyond the privacy invasion, the risk accompanied the proposition that some papers, innocent in themselves, might might be combined with the slightest alteration to be converted to criminal action. After only a half hour of deliberation, the jury returned a verdict for Wilkes, awarding an astonishing 1,000 pounds in damages. Two days later, the St. James Chronicle reflected, by this important decision, every Englishman has a satisfaction of seeing that his home is his castle. Recall that in 1604, Sir Edward Cook had famously stated in Semaine's case, the house of everyone is to him as his castle and fortress, as well as his defense against injury and violence, as for his repose. In that case, Cook recognized that there were limits on the crown's ability to intrude within the home in the private homes of the king's subjects. 24 years later, he incorporated that principle into his institutes. For a man's house is his castle at Domesuasic at Tusicium Refugium, and each man's home is his safest refuge. This is the language to which the St. James Chronicle referred in its assessment of the importance of Wilkes and Wood. Two years after that case, Lord Chief Justice Mansfield in the court of the King's Bench similarly found himself confronted by the execution of the North Britain warrant, the general warrant, in this case as it was executed against the printer, Dryden Leach. Like Glynn, who was John Wilkes's counsel, Dunning, who was uh, Leach's counsel, argued that the generality of the warrant was precisely what made it invalid. To ransack private studies in order to search for evidence and even without a previous search, sorry, charge on oath is contrary to natural justice as well as to the liberty of the subject. He concluded to search a man's private papers ad libitum and even without accusation is an infringement of the natural rights of mankind. Lord Mansfield, presiding over the case, agreed. He noted that Hale and others 
holds such an uncertain warrant void. There is no case or book to the contrary, and the judgment stood. These were hardly the only cases to condemn general warrants in Antic v. Carrington. Chief Justice Charles Pratt contemplated an action in trespass against the Crown for execution of a general warrant. Pratt ruled against the government, observing that the great end for which men enter into society is to secure their property. Under English law, every invasion of private property, be it ever so minute, is a trespass. By this, he did not just mean a physical trespass of the home. He went on to say specifically, papers are the owner's goods and chattels. They are his dearest property, and far from enduring a seizure, they will hardly bear an inspection. By 1766, members of the House of Commons referred to the writs in even more derisive terms. A general warrant, they said on the floor, is such a piece of nonsense as deserves not to be spoken of, being no warrant at all. Two years later, William Blackstone, in his commentaries on the laws of England, underscored the distinction between specific and general warrants. The latter were illegal and void for their uncertainty, for it is the duty of the magistrate and ought not to be left to the officer to judge the ground of suspicion. So by the time of the American founding, according to English legal treatises and case law, general warrants were not to be tolerated, even, as Cook noted, for reason of state, which is close to what we now understand as national security. There was no circumstance under which general warrants would be allowed. Why? Well, because general warrants violated Magna Carta. They undermined the rule of law. Criminal procedural protections would mean nothing if they could be simply swept aside at the will of the king. Even specific warrants would only be tolerated if they carried sufficient particularity, naming the person, the suspected crime, evidence for the suspicion, under oath, and the particular place to be searched. The decision of determining whom to search should not be left to the executive or to the crown. Hale explained it transferred too much power to the crown. So when the American colonists left England, they expected that their rights as Englishmen would travel with them. But in the New World, general warrants again began proliferating, this time in the form of writs of assistance. A writ of assistance is a document that provides a customs agent and later naval officers with the authority to search ships and warehouses, private dwellings, to uncover goods that had failed to be properly accounted for through customs. Any person presented with the paper had to assist the crown. That's why they're known as writs of assistance. So in the context of the French and the Indian War, the British governors in the New World started increasingly using writs of assistance to try to stop illegal trade, first with the French Indies and then with French Canada. When George II died, uh, the crown had only six months to renew these writs of assistance. This gave merchants an opportunity to challenge their legality. They chose one of the leading lawyers of the time, James Otis Jr., who resigned his position as Deputy Advocate General of the Massachusetts Vice Admiralty Court to take the case. His oration in Paxton's case, named after one of the customs agents who originally was given a writ of assistance, it remains one of the most famous in American history. More than 50 years after the event, John Adams, our second president, who was there at the time, reported, Otis was a flame of fire. His argument breathed into this nation the breath of life. He continued, every man of an immense crowded audience appeared to me ready to go away as I did, ready to take up arms against writs of assistance. Professor A.J. Languth has reflected on this time, James Otis stood up to speak and something profound changed in America. 
Otis attacked the idea that the crown should have the authority to enter and search the private papers of British subjects. I will to my dying day oppose with all the powers and faculties God has given me, all such instruments of slavery on the one hand and villainy on the other as this writ of assistance is. It represented the worst instrument of arbitrary power the most destructive of English liberty and the fundamental principles of the Constitution that ever was found in an English law book. Harkening back to Charles I and James I, he noted that it was this type of despotic power that had cost one king of England his head and another his throne. See, every person carrying this warrant had the potential to be a tyrant, and not just through his behavior, but through behavior backed by law. Individuals could use the writ to take revenge on others or to target political opponents. And those who were forced to comply had their rights compromised as well. At base were concerns about the sanctity of the home and the importance of privacy and ensuring security. One of the most essential branches of English liberty, Otis noted, is the freedom of one's house. A man's house is his castle, and whilst he is quiet, he is well guarded as a prince in his castle. A writ of assistance, if it should be declared legal, would totally annihilate this privilege. Our second president later reflected, then and there was the first scene of the first act of opposition to the arbitrary claims of Great Britain. Then and there, the child independence was born. Americans were eager to ensure that the new governments did not have the right to issue a general warrant. And so in May of 1776, the Fifth Virginia Convention assembled a veritable pantheon of the American Republic. Patrick Henry, George Washington, Edmund Pendleton, George Mason, George Wyeth, Richard Henry Lee, Thomas Jefferson, and others. To Mason, of course, fell the responsibility of drafting the Virginia Declaration of Rights. And in that document, Mason laid out the natural rights of man. He drew from Locke and Montesquieu, English history, colonial experience, and he declared that individuals hold certain rights which limit the power of government. Amongst these was the right to be free of general warrants. The Virginia Declaration of Rights, Article 14, states that general warrants, whereby any officer or messenger may be commanded to search suspected places without evidence of a fact committed or to seize any person or persons not named or whose offense is not particularly described and supported by evidence are grievance and, grievance and ought not to be granted. The right against promiscuous search and seizure lay at the heart of the founding. Along with the principle of consent, the right to a jury trial, it freed the colonists from tyrannical rule. Virginia was not alone in its condemnation of, Virginia, of general warrants. In July of 1776, Benjamin Franklin, George Bryan, James Cannon, Thomas Paine, and others drafted a new constitution for the state of Pennsylvania. It established security from searches and seizures as a right held by the people. Specifically, it read, the people shall be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and possessions from unreasonable searches and seizures and no warrant to search any place or seize any person or things shall issue without describing them as nearly as may be nor without probable cause supported by oath or affirmation subscribed to by affiant. By using the word unreasonable, Pennsylvania meant something different than what is commonly attributed today to the Fourth Amendment. Unreasonable in the 18th century meant against reason, which translated into against the reason of the common law. The common law would not admit of general warrants. And so an unreasonable warrant 
was a general warrant. Anything that violated the common law was illegal, and it was against the common law to allow for general warrants. Delaware, Maryland, North Carolina, other states followed suit. These early state constitutions transformed a colonial grievance about the Crown's violation of their rights due as Englishmen into a written guarantee of a constitutional right. Accordingly, when the founders rewrote the Articles of Confederation into the US Constitution, state after state demanded that a new clause be added to a Bill of Rights outlawing the use of general warrants. The liveliest and most intense exchanges took place, perhaps unsurprisingly, in Virginia. Patrick Henry was this charismatic former governor. He led the attack. Henry worried that the new constitution imperiled Americans' rights and privileges, as well as the sovereignty of state governments. He demanded that a Bill of Rights be added to ensure the protection of individual liberties. I feel myself distressed because the necessity of securing our personal rights seems not to have pervaded the minds of men, for many other valuable things are omitted. For instance, general warrants, by which an officer may search suspected places without evidence of the commission of a fact or seize any person without evidence of his crime. The problem was that property could be taken in the most arbitrary manner, he put it, without any evidence or reason. Everything considered sacred could be ransacked and searched by the strong hand of power. So the Virginia delegates went on to propose, in the proposed Bill of Rights, a protection against unreasonable or unconstitutional against the reason of the common law, general warrants, and by eliminating them. Its proposed measure stated that every freeman has the right to be secure from all unreasonable searches and seizures of his person, going on to propose the outlawing of general warrants. The debates in New York similarly highlighted the absence of a measure addressing general warrants. For Rhode Island, it was only with the understanding that the Constitution would be amended to take account of the prohibition of general warrants that they would ratify the document. In Maryland, anti-federalists warned that under the new Constitution, excise officers would have the power to enter your home at any time of day or night. And if you refuse them entrance, they can, under pretense of searching for excisable goods, Break open your doors, chests, trunks, desks, boxes, and rummage your house from bottom to top. And so Maryland also proposed that a Bill of Rights prohibit general warrants, even as it laid out the particulars that would have to be met for even a particular warrant to be declared constitutional. In Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, similar conversations took place prompting Madison when entrusted with the drafting of the Bill of Rights to vow to protect the rights of conscience, the freedom of the press, trial by jury, and security against general warrants. And thus we get to the Fourth Amendment. It establishes the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. It shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and persons or things to be seen, seized. So the first part of this clause establishes the right against general warrant. And the second part introduces further specifics that have to be met even for specific warrants to be valid. With that history in mind, one could perhaps be forgiven for being somewhat surprised on June 6, 2013, when the Guardian announced that the United States was collecting the phone records of millions of Americans. The order required Verizon to turn over all call, call detail records of telephony metadata 
created by Verizon for communications between the United States and abroad or wholly within the United States, including local telephone calls. Issued by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the order did not name any particular individual suspected of wrongdoing. It did not specify a crime. There was no oath or affirmation. The order did not indicate a particular place to be searched. Indeed, it did not appear to be tailored in any way whatsoever. Now, some people would contend that the information being collected was not private, and thus it did not deserve the protections of the Fourth Amendment. That statement does not survive scrutiny. The order demanded that documents detailing citizens' friendships, private conversations, social networks, and relationships, as well as their location, as revealed from cell phone trunk identifier information, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for months at a time, be turned over to the government. Now, it's important to note here that a significant amount of personal information is entailed in telephony metadata. A recent study by computer scientists at Stanford University, for instance, looked at 546 people over three months' time. They looked at the numbers dialed, the patterns in the call, and they were able to ascertain highly sensitive personal information. One participant uh, spoke at length with cardiologists at a medical center for a short time with a medical laboratory and then received calls from a pharmacy and then telephoned a home reporting hotline for a medical device that's used to monitor cardiac arrhythmia. Another participant called a firearms store specializing in AR-15 semi-automatic rifles before telephoning customer service for a manufacturer that produces an AR-15 line. A third participant called a home improvement store, a locksmith, a hydroponics dealer, and a head shop. They did volunteer for this study, I should add. A fourth person telephoned her sister and spoke to her at length. Two days later, she called Planned Parenthood. A fortnight later, she telephoned the clinic a few times. One month later, she called it a final time. The metadata provided insight into the participants' heart conditions, gun purchases, cannabis cultivation, and decision to have an abortion. And it was a small sample over a short period of a limited number of calls. The Verizon order, it turned out, had been in place for nearly a decade, and it carried the imprimatur of the courts. It was a judicial writ, which demanded that anyone served with it comply. And it was used to being, it was being used to find evidence of criminal activity. The types of issues at stake are duplicative of the concerns at the founding. The same privacy interests that we have today were there then. Access to our family and friends, access to our intimate relationships, the right to solitude, the ability to question the world and our role in it, to figure out who we are and who we want to be, the freedom to set intimacy in our relationships and diversity in our relationships, democratic deliberation, the marketplace of ideas, the same potential harms attached today as they did at the founding, the harm of overturning the age-old precept of guilty until proven innocent. Instead, everybody is potentially guilty until they're later proven innocent. Um, should be innocent until proven guilty is the, is the way it ought to be. Um, the idea that you can target social, political, and economic opponents. You can use it for blackmail. You can override our structural protections as well as our federalist protections. I'll just conclude briefly uh, now. One argument that's offered now is, well, we're sorted. We've done away with the 215 program, so what is there really to worry about? This argument is a red herring. The advent of big data, the potential of new analytical tools paired with ways in which technology has catapulted our world forward make this one of the most pressing questions of our time. Telephony metadata collection under 215 is far from the only 
game in town. It's from Stellar Wind, from the Internet Metadata Collection under the Pen Register Trap and, Tra Trap and Trace provisions. The other 711 metadata orders that we still have not seen under Section 215. Section 702 in the collection of information not just to or from, but anything about suspected targets or words or I guess, identifiers associated with the targets. Under Executive Order 12333, we now know about MISTIC, communications to and from countries, muscular, email address books, optic nerve, webcam images, chat sessions. From Dishfire, we have text messages and geolocational data is being collected at a shocking rate. The basic idea here is that by collecting everything, tagging it, and storing it, information can be searched to find evidence of illegal behavior. These programs, we're told, allow the government greater insight into the threats faced by our country. That statement is undoubtedly true. It is also true that the collection of this information allows the government incredible insight into our daily private lives. Leaked documents suggest that the NSA is scanning communications that travel across the backbone of the internet and intercepting data between servers. It's then fed into a massive database where the NSA queries it 20 million times per month. Even when data is collected from foreign country targeting or foreign individuals or foreign entities, the NSA may use US person identifiers to query the database. In short, large-scale mass collection looks a lot like what the founders were trying to avoid by preventing the government from using promiscuous search authorities. It is precisely what Otis protested, and it gave birth to the Fourth Amendment. Persistent collection of citizens' private information with the purpose of finding evidence of wrongdoing without oath or affirmation or probable cause and without particularly describing the person or places to be searched or persons or things to be seized flies in the face of our constitutional doctrine and is on its face unconstitutional. Uh, my colleague, uh, John Mueller, uh, to the stage. Okay, actually, my, my uh, talk here fits very nicely with the one you just heard. Um, the issue basically is not so much, except it's the direct opposite. The issue is not whether the surveillance techniques um, are uh, illegal or unconstitutional, but do they do any good? Um, and uh, uh, in a few weeks, we hope to come out on Halloween, unfortunately it's going to be later than that, a book I've written with Mark Stewart called Chasing Ghosts, uh, the, uh, the policing of terrorism will be coming out, and we're trying to apply cost-benefit analysis to surveillance techniques. Um, and the, the key issue on this to begin with is to, let me bring up a name of someone who hasn't come up so far, which is Dick Cheney. Uh, uh, Dick Cheney says that the surveillance techniques and, and torture and a bunch of other things has saved thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, what you can't do is just let that argument stay. Because the, uh, as you just heard, of course, uh, the, the Constitution provides unreasonable search and seizure. So the question is, what is unreasonable? And if Dick Cheney is able to say, well, you may not think it's very reasonable, you may, may think it's search and seizure, but it saved 100,000 lives. Most people will say, well, that sounds pretty reasonable to me. Um, and that way of looking at it is not completely unknown. Um, 
the uh, uncommon. Uh, in 2013, December, two different, interestingly uh, different uh, court cases came to, to uh, uh, court judgments came to pass. Uh, one of the court judgments uh, said that the 215 program was probably unconstitutional. It also said it hadn't done any good. The other said it is very constitutional, lawful, and wonderful, and it's done a lot of good. In other words, the, the, the essentially, I mean, this is not the way they put it, of course, but essentially its, its, uh, its uh, value was from the argument that basically it, it, did, it, did, uh, it uh, caught terrorists. Uh, and most of the surveillance things, I'm somewhat amazed to find out uh, how much this is being expanded overseas, uh, is sort of the uh, expansion idea, and no one seems to be really evaluating, do we get a good, do we get anything for it, whether it's constitutional or not? Um, so we tried, uh, anyway, Mark and I tried putting this together, and we had, uh, oh, there's one other issue, is that um, um, Senators uh, Wyden and, uh, um, and uh, Udall, Udall were able to get the NSA to stop a metadata collection program, mass, mass, uh, metadata program, collection program stop, stopped several years ago, I think 2012 or so, uh, by pointing out not that it was an unreasonable search and seizure, but it didn't do any good. So they had, it kept hitting NSA with that, and NSA eventually uh, stopped it because they weren't, it wasn't proving valuable. I've done a study of all the cases in the United States of uh, Muslim terrorism, uh, and they generally indicate that if, if you want to catch terrorists, probably met, with metadata, it's much better to do with email than with telephone records because they don't really call each other up on the phone that much. Most of their communication is face-to-face, -face, uh, but beyond that, it's mostly email. So that sort of suggests that there might be a, a basic problem there. Anyway, we, we first of all, we looked at various programs in the, in the, in the book, um, both from NSA and DHS and uh, other places. Um, and when we looked at the 215 program, we had a big problem in terms of cost-benefit analysis. Uh, one is we couldn't figure out what the cost was. Uh, we're in this age of transparency, but even though this program is obviously extremely well known by now, it's still that no one is telling us how much it costs. You think the taxpayers might want to know that. Uh, however, that was somewhat obviated by the other fact is that we couldn't find it had any benefit. Um, so um, the, uh, basically, if you've got a cost-benefit analysis and something costs something but doesn't have any benefits at all, uh, it becomes a bit of a no-brainer. But since we were doing cost-benefit analysis, we didn't want to you know, uh, just do a no-brainer. We said, let's pretend it could do stuff. And so we uh, fairly reasonably, and of course very transparently in the book, uh, work out um, uh, some you know, possible in the future Maybe it will actually do some good, and this is, you know, might be in this range. Then the question is, how much would it have to cost uh, in order to justify that much gain? Uh, and it can't cost more than that. So the result of that was, that it should, if it costs less than forty billion, forty million dollars, not a very much, very much money, um, as Washington goes, if it costs less than forty million dollars, uh, it's uh, going to be cost effective. And it's pretty clear that whatever its number is, it costs much more than that, because it's, it's, it's likely to cost, even in the initial phase, uh, well over $40 million simply to collect and, and survey the data, and certainly to then to send the tips to the FBI, which then have to be investigated, and that costs. And then on top of that are the security costs, or the, the privacy costs. If you ask people, could you, find could you find 40 million people in the United States who'd be willing to spend $1 a year to not be surveilled by NSA, you could probably find them, or two, 20 million that would spend $2 a year. 
Um, at any rate, when we looked into the th thing uh, further, um, there's sort of th uh, three sort of layers of things. First of all, when you ask people, how did it help, uh, they can come up with very few cases where the surveillance, uh, basically of any sort, national surveillance by the NSA, has done any good. They came up with about 50 cases out of potentially hundreds or even thousands of cases. Um, and then the second layer is, okay, you, you argue, and, and when you look at those cases, they sort of, many of them fall apart, uh, as the, uh, was indicated earlier today uh, on a different panel. Um, and then when you look at it more carefully, uh, the question is really ought to be, <coughs> is not did it help, but was it crucial? That is, say, was it necessary? We, t we, found, we, we had this data and we used it in this case, um, and this guy was eventually convicted of being a terrorist. But then the question is, if you didn't have that, could, would the result have been the same? And in virtually all cases, that would be the case. You didn't, the data may have helped. They may have been confirming a little bit and so forth, but you didn't need them to get the conviction. Um, <coughs> then the third area is, okay, you go through all this effort, and you put these things together, and you get the guy, and you get him convicted, and you get him in jail, and uh, what, was it worth it? And frequently, not always, but frequently, the, the plots obstructed and so forth were so trivial that it wasn't worth breaking them up at all. And the, the, the extreme case is in the case of 215. The only, there's only one case, really, where you could probably say 215 was pretty important, maybe even crucial. Uh, this case was of a taxicab driver uh, in San Diego uh, who had sent $8,500 over to a terrorist group in Somalia. Um, and um, so that was the whole crime, $8,500 to, to a terrorist group that had tens of thousands of people and been going on for years. Uh, $8,500 is not much money in the United States. It's probably more money in Somalia, but it's not exactly the difference between life and death for that terrorist group. So he had basically a fairly small impact uh, over, uh, of that. And on top of that, he'd given up uh, the, the, this terrorist group um, in 2009, uh, had blown up a, uh, a college commencement in Somalia and was basically written off by any Somali sympathizers in the United States. That was too much for them, and he was among them. So he, hadn't, he wasn't giving money. So the result of all this effort, this guy had committed a crime, but the crime was basically of that level. And the question is, do you want to spend a lot of money getting people in jail for doing something that's basically fundamentally trivial overall? So that should also be in the calculation. Okay, so that's sort of our looking, at, uh, going through this very briefly, uh, some of the ways this, this uh, gets put together. Uh, the second uh, uh, area, I have four, four major points here. Uh, the second area is basically is that the gathering of the data uh, increases and increases and increases the size of a haystack. Uh, because you, with all the metadata and all the other kind of data things you can get, and we just saw a list of some, some of those, uh, you can just get fantastic amounts of data. Um, and uh, it basically is unfathomable in the literal sense. You can't find the bottom of it. You can't fathom it can't, uh, can't, uh, because you've got tons of data and then you also have uh, investigators who are impelled by what we call the 9-11 commission syndrome that you have to follow up every single lead. Otherwise, you might you know, miss the one that becomes the next 9-11. So they do algorithms to try to find suspicious phone numbers uh, but the suspicious phone numbers, uh, they don't want to be too tight about it because they might miss something. So they have tons of extra stuff coming into the FBI uh, that, that, to investigate it. Uh, the, the phrase at NSA was, uh, we track them, you whack them. 
Um, and the FBI is not too happy about that because the leads that tend to come from the NSA, whoever gotten, whoever gotten, are, are officially referred to or unofficially uh, as Pizza Hut leads. Uh, you get a phone number and you sort of you follow it up, and it turns out that um, it was basically just a, um, uh, a uh, you know the, the guy calling the Pizza Hut. Um, uh, Robert Mueller who is a rather diplomatic guy, the director of the FBI until a year or so ago, um, even told Keith Alexander, uh, this stuff is just a useless time suck. In other words, all it do is costing the FBI tons of money to chase all these silly things, uh, and they're basically not leading to anything. Um, when I looked at the court cases of cases in the United States of people planning or accused of doing um, um, the, uh, the doing, uh, potentially doing terrorism in the United States, the NSA essentially never came up. It's not clear they ever even asked the NSA, did you, did you look at this number? Maybe they did, but it didn't come up in the, in the court case itself um, as, uh, as corroborating uh, evidence and so forth. Um, so what you get is this, um, this issue of just tons of material coming in, and tons of cases, tons of tips. The FBI, since 9-11, by our calculation, has followed up more than 10 million uh, leads about terrorism. The numbers of those that have led to anything at all is about one out of every 10,000. Uh, of those that have led to something have mostly led to either nothing or very little. Um, so what you get is an incredible amount of effort by an incredible number of agents. $3 billion is the budget of the FBI on, on counterterrorism alone. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's basically come up with very, very little. Of, of much value, uh, not hundreds of thousands of dead, um, of, of lives saved, as, uh, as Cheney would put it. Um, it also leads, um, as part of this, to paranoia. Uh, let me give you an example from um, a Harvard law professor who is embedded, as you might say, with the Justice Department. What happens is, uh, because the 9-11 commission syndrome is there, Every tip has to be evaluated. It's still the law or the, the policy of the FBI that every tip has to be run down. I talked to one FBI guy, top guy, who said, use the word, unfortunately, yes, we still have to do that. In other words, you got something that a uh, tip comes in and says, my ex is a terrorist. He's also a communist. He's also a prevert. And you have, you have to check that out because the word terrorism is in there. Preverts can get along you know, with some, some other issue. Um, and so consequently, they're, they're constantly following these things up. Uh, but what happens is you constantly get these tips coming in. And let me give, let's give you uh, four statements from uh, uh, Jack Goldsmith, uh, the Harvard lawyer I mentioned. He said, it is hard to overstate the impact of the incessant waves of threat reports that they have on the judgment of the people inside the executive branch who are responsible for protecting American lives. You can't, it, you can't underestimate it. And then he quotes George Tennant, the head of the FBI, the head of the CIA, uh, uh, up until 2008, who said that virtually every day you would hear something about a possible impending threat that would scare you to death. And Goldsmith says, this captures the attitude of every person I, who regularly read the threat matrix. So going through this, this long list of uh, things, every single day you get scared to death, according to Tennant. That may be an exaggeration of some uh, magnitude, but not a very great one. Um, and that everybody does that. Uh, and the Goldsmith includes, concludes this way. The want of actionable intelligence combined with the knowledge of what might be out there produced an aggressive panicked attitude toward what, uh, what that assumed the worst about the threats. 
Now, if you don't have actionable intelligence, it means that none of this stuff is leading to anything. One hypothesis is there's nothing out there, but that doesn't come up. Instead, boy, we have to look really hard on that. Um, the third point is basically um, somewhat related to that. Um, it not only uh, it creates what I would, what some people have called institutionalized paranoia, uh, uh, just going through these tips endlessly, even though they don't lead to anything, and not willing to embrace the alternative hypothesis, namely they don't lead to anything because there's nothing for them to lead to, because we know there's a lot of bad people out there. Uh, it also leads to the idea that if we can't find them, they must be really, really clever. Uh, and they're there and they're waiting. George Tennant in 2008 in his autobiography uh, called uh, At the, um, uh, not the Vanishing Point, uh, At the Center of the Storm, I would prefer to call it At the Center of the Teapot, but we won't go that, in that direction, um, says that um, the question is why hasn't Al-Qaeda attacked? Well, one possibility, they aren't there. Uh, between, in 2002, uh, the, the intelligence est estimates were that there were between two and 4,000 Al-Qaeda operatives in the United States. We now know pretty much about that, and the answer how many were there is probably extremely close to zero. So they're off only by a factor of two or three or 4,000. Um, uh, but he says, why haven't they attacked? He says, because they're waiting for a, the right moment. Uh, it's now seven years since he published that, and we're still waiting. They're all probably sitting around watching TV, uh, waiting for the moment, saying, you know, just wait a while. I, get, I have to get another drink or watch another, another uh, soap opera or something like that. Um, so what you get, basically, um, is this idea that they're extremely capable and diabolical. Well, let me give you a statement uh, from the, uh, that fits into this syndrome uh, from the um, uh, Department of Homeland Security. The enemy is relentless, patient, opportunistic, and flexible, shows an understanding of the potential consequences of carefully planned attacks on economic, transportation, and symbolic targets, seriously threatens national interest, and can inflict mass casualties, weaken the economy, and damage public morale and confidence. That's the end. Now, the next sentence said, however, most of them are knuckleheads, you'd at least have a balanced presentation. But the second sentence basically never comes there. So what you what you get is the, the coming out of this threat reporting, uh, of which the NSA is very much a center, um, is this but not only paranoia, uh, but also the idea that this, we have these incredible diabolical people out there. And when they catch these diabolical people, they turn out to be knuckleheads uh, in an extraordinarily large degree. Uh, planning one, one brilliant plan plat was to, they didn't have any bombs, but if they had bombs, they were planning to crash the Sears Tower in Chicago into Lake Michigan. They would create, create a tsunami which would wash back on Chicago, and then they would come in and liberate certain prisoners from jail and start a new Moorish nation. <coughs> uh, when you go through many of the cases, they basically, there's, a, there's a film, which I strongly recommend, uh, by um, a British film uh, by Chris, uh, Chris Morris, uh, uh, Chris... Uh, Morris, I think it is, uh, called Four Lions, dealing with four uh, fictional terrorists in, in England. And they basically fit very much the pattern of the, of the people in this country. Um, so, so the third thing is basically they seem to be extraordinarily capable. And let me just end mostly, pretty much on that with one final fourth uh, point on this. Um, the, um, uh, an issue, and I don't want to push this too far because I haven't really thought about it myself, is, is any intelligence very helpful? I mean, uh, um, the, uh, I, just, I came across just recently 
a book about the FBI uh, that was written by Ethan Theo Harris, who's done lots of books about the FBI. Um, and he's talking about the Cold War. He says, it's debatable whether Soviet espionage or American counterintelligence operations changed the course of history in any important way. So the question is basically, did anything, what good has intelligence ever basically done? Has it ever really changed history in an important way, or even a minor way? Uh, it's certainly done some bad things, for example, justifying the war in Iraq uh, with uh, 200,000 or so uh, dead people because of that, mistake, that uh, episode. <coughs> uh, it certainly gave us the Bay of Pigs in 1961. It may have had, had some beneficial place, uh, value here and there, but mostly that may have changed history in somewhat a bad way. Uh, but it's not clear that, it, that we wouldn't have better off if there wasn't uh, intelligence uh, going on out there at all. Um, anyway, I think that should be considered. It, it, what happens is you get the History Channel, and you have the museum over here, you know, uh, the, the, about spies, and no one ever says, what good did it do? I mean, it, you can have all kinds of fancy things about them chasing each other, James Bond-like, down dark alleys and so forth. Um, but what are we getting for this enormous counterterrorism or, or, or spy budget? Um, we may not be getting very much at all, and I think it, it ought to really be um, basically considered. Okay, let me end on that. Do we have time for questions, or are we on to the next one? Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll call to the stage the final of our uh, short speakers, uh, uh, Dan Schumann from Demand Progress, uh, who's talking about uh, how to make Congress a little smarter, a daunting, a daunting topic. I hope you like the... Uh the photo here. Uh, so thank you. Um, so this talk is basically going to have two parts. Uh, the major part is why Congress isn't quite as, as smart as we would hope it to be, and then a couple of uh, recommendations, although there's, of course, a lot more that can be said. Uh, it's going to break into three parts, so I'm going to talk in context of personnel matters as to why Congress is having some difficulties being uh, smart about national security uh, and intelligence matters. Second is matters of congressional process. And finally, in terms of uh, congressional prioritization. Uh, but before I start, we've all been sitting for a while. Does people want to move around, like take a deep breath? Are we ready? OK, good. Uh, signs of life, excellent. So first, looking at personnel, Congress sort of writ large. When you look at Senate committee staff over the last quarter decade, you know, we were talking earlier about Back to the Future. Well, this is more of a Simpsons kind of themed uh, presentation. Uh, but going back to the late 70s, there were somewhere in the vicinity of 1,400 uh, congressional committee staff on the Senate side. In 2005, the latest, which the latest information that I have is about, is about uh, 957 staff. In other words, it's about uh, two-thirds the number of total committee staff in the Senate uh, that we did 25 years ago. The House is kind of the same, from a little bit more than 2,000 to 1,200 committee staff. Of course, the committees are where policy making work is done. So these are the people who would actually be engaging in oversight over our four to five trillion dollar federal government. Um, when you look at the government's, the Congress's watchdog, the GAO, also down uh, to, to three-fifths of its level. It's at, uh, dropped by about 2,000 staff over the same period of time. Uh, and when you look at just, you know, I'm not trying to pull out all the points, but I just gave you pieces of this. Uh, when you look at the responsibility for billions of dollars spent per appropriation subcommittee, looking on the Senate side, uh, people who work on defense matters, which is where a lot of the national security work is done, uh, each legislator on the relevant subcommittee is responsible for approximately $33.5 billion worth of spending. 
which is the most uh, compared to anyone else. The next closest is Labor HHS, which is the third less, which is about $11.7 billion uh, per member of Congress. And of course, the, the numbers drop from there. So as you can see, there is a lot of money that each particular member is responsible for when it comes to the national security context. Uh, so let's move on to process. Uh, just to give you a taste, there's a lot more data where that came from. Uh, so Congressman Dingell uh, once uh, very famously said, and it's been repeated office, often, that if uh, I'll let you write the substance and you let me write the procedure, and then I'll screw, and of course, the other words have been used in that particular spot, uh, screw you every time. So who chooses the members of the intelligence committees? Well, all the standing committees are chosen by the steering committees in the House and the Senate, but the intelligence committees are chosen by the majority and minority leaders in each chamber. So as a consequence, uh, the membership and what they care about strongly reflects the person at the top. It doesn't as closely reflect the membership of either chamber. And that has very serious implications for what the intelligence committee does and does not focus on. When you have members uh, like the speaker who cares a lot about this, then you tend to have a more active intelligence committee and better leadership. When you tend to have uh, speakers who care less about this kind of thing, for example, you tend to have uh, people like Senator Burr. Um, so moving on to GAO as an investigator, uh, this is just another example of process kinds of questions. So Congress relies on GAO to do basic investigatory work. Um, it has empowered GAO to go and ferret out all sorts of waste, fraud, and abuse from the intelligence community. Um, but you see the intelligence community pushing back and actually trying to tell Congress what its business is. Uh, this is a quote from a Washington Post article. I'm not going to read it to you. Um, but basically, Jones and Clapper say that they are drawing a bright line between general inquiries and things that actually matter. Things that actually matter, of course, are the purview of the Intelligence Committee uh, committees, according to the heads of uh, CIA and FBI, and not something that Congress itself can decide for itself. Final uh, uh, piece with the, with respect to to this is so the most powerful tool at the hands of Congress, uh, besides, of course, uh, having fun with people's budgets, is uh, exposing information to the public. The use of public opinion is the greatest powerful tool that Congress has. It doesn't have an army. Uh, it doesn't have uh, you know, a police force. But what it does have is the ability to get the American people to care about matters. Uh, but the process that Congress has afforded to itself to uh, make available information to the public is so arcane and so difficult under a resolution called SRES 400 on the Senate side, it's equivalent one on the House, that it basically has never been used. It was partially used once a couple years back, but that's it. Congress has not availed itself of uh, its ability to declassify information around lying about war, lying about um, uh, you know, information that it receives around other types of activities that the executive branch uh, may happen to engage in. Um, we were at a presentation, I was at a presentation yesterday, where Senator uh, Levin was talking about a cable that he was holding in his, that, in his hands that he knew that, there, that he was being lied to by the uh, intelligence folks. Uh, he questioned them about it publicly, they lied to him, but because he did not feel that he could declassify that particular cable, um, uh, as a consequence, the uh, 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 US was uh, essentially tricked into war uh, in Iraq. So moving on to questions around priorities. So let's look at budgets. Uh, the National Intelligence Program budget uh, is somewhere in the vicinity of $54 billion. 
The legislative branch budget rip hole, this includes funding for things like Capitol Police and the, that wonderful botanical gardens that they have and all those kinds of things, about $4 billion. S spending on standing in select committees, these are the people who do the investigation of everything that happens, all the oversight, all the legislating, is a tenth of a billion dollars. And of course, if you drill down to the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, it's a small fraction of that. So just looking at National Intelligence Program budget, budget for uh, committees to engage in investigations, we're about a one to 500 ratio. When you get to the Intelligence Committee, looking at the specific topic, the intelligence programs, it's an even smaller fraction of that. That's no wonder that they can't keep up. So there are ways to address parts of this. Uh, for example, there are tons of public reporting requirements, but Congress is not availing itself of basic techniques to make use of this information. There are IG reports, but all the IG reports aren't collected in one place. If you want to go and find them, you have to go and dig through them. Uh, there's been private sector efforts to aggregate them in one place, but you can't do it. Agency reports to Congress, you would think that a committee that requests a report from an agency like the NSA would be able to find that report later on if they needed it. They can't. Uh, the report may go to a particular staffer. There's another staffer on that same committee who doesn't know that the report has come in. Or there was a report that came in last year. Or there was a report that came into the Senate committee and you're on the House side. As it turns out, uh, they have a really hard time finding all of these thousands of reports that come in uh, to see what's going on. There's actually a bill to address this. It has a terrible name. I didn't name it. Uh, called the Access to Congressionally Mandated Reports Act that would require all these reports to be in one location so that everybody could find them and look at them and so on and so forth. Uh, I won't name the appropriation staffer who's holding it up, um, but uh, it is being held up. GEO reports, uh, most of them are available online. GEO actually just made a great step of listing uh, the titles of uh, reports that they can't actually release to the public, um, but they're actually doing a good job. CRS reports, of course, you can't get them in a comprehensive way. We have no idea how many people hold clearance as a general matter, although we have been able to get some information at the executive branch fairly recently. And then, of course, there's the declassification process, FOIA, mandatory declassification review, and so on and so forth. These are all ways that one can get information, but Congress has not set up systems. It's not built the technology. It has not availed itself of the ways that it can pull all the stuff together so it can actually make use of all the information that is finally able to ferret out and weasel out and force out uh, of folks like the intelligence committees. So another aspect of process that's very important who has clearance? You know, you often hear the executive branch talk about, well, you can't let members of Congress and their staff have access to this information because they're going to leak it. Well, when you look at the people who have clearance, at the top secret level, you have about a half million executive branch employees who have top secret clearance. You have about a half a million contractors who have top secret clearance. You've got about 170,000 people. The executive branch can say whether they were an employee or a contractor, but those people have clearance. Uh, but we don't really know how many people in Congress have clearance. Uh, there's 20,000 staff in Congress total. Uh, the number is probably more like in the, in the dozens that have clearance. Uh, so when you look at the question of who is able to ask the difficult questions about what's going on, where the information is, we see a tremendous disparity between those people who have access to the information and those people, the overseers, Congress, the legislators, Congress, who don't have the clearance they need to do the work that they need to do, and there's not a whole lot of them. And this is as of October 2010, this was required. We don't have ongoing snapshots along these lines. This was something that was ferreted out uh, by a particular request. So let's look inside Congress just for a second. Uh, looking at the Intelligence Committee. The Intelligence Committee, of course, is responsible for engaging in oversight of what the Intelligence Community is doing. The Church Committee in the 1970s had 135 staff. 
to engage in investigation of what was going on. This was on top of the oversight that was already engaged by the other committees. The Pike Committee that occurred concurrently had 32 staff. Uh, this, the 9-11 Committee, uh, which operated on top of the Senate and House Intelligence Committees, had 25 dedicated staff of their own for over a year just to go and look at um, uh, what was occurring. And as we stand now, I don't have numbers for the House side, but the Senate Intelligence Committee has 40 staff. So as you can see, the number of committee staff dedicated to looking at what's going on in the Intelligence Committee is minuscule at best. And as uh, we found out at an event yesterday, two-thirds of the Senate Intelligence Committee staff are actually um, uh, people who work for uh, the military or for the intelligence community and are either designees or are former folks uh, and may very well reflect the attitudes uh, uh, of their former employers. Uh, finally, and I'm not gonna get into this in great detail, but just very quickly, the members of Congress who actually have influence on the intelligence community, they used to be sort of more powerful members of Congress who would serve now, as you've seen over time, as, a, as a, someone else's report has shown, uh, the, um, the number of folks doing this kind of work who actually care about what's going on, who are actually influential within Congress, has significantly decreased. So, what to do? There were so many great pictures to choose from. I, I had a... So, uh, and I'll do this very briefly. We can go into this uh, in greater detail at a different time. But basically, what we need is an assertive Congress. So in the context of personnel, we need to address making sure that the committee members who serve on the relevant committees actually care about the work and are influential with their colleagues. And they need to have enough staff to be able to do their jobs. And this is not just true for the Intelligence Committee, but you also need to empower all members of Congress, since they are responsible, of course, for uh, making decisions and setting budgets around uh, intelligence and other matters. Second, you need to strengthen investigatory and pro-disclosure rules. It's very hard to get access to the information. I was talking about how GAO is often stymied. Well, there are ways to address that. Congress can fix a lot of these, these efforts. They can change the way FOIA works. They can change the way the mandatory declassification review process works. They can go and they can require an aggregation of this information. This is a process problem. Third, Congress needs to make oversight and uh, uh, legislating a priority. They need to make sure that more members of Congress are able to exercise their interests in these matters. They need to centralize information so that people can have access to it. I really appreciate your time and attention. Thank you so much.